We are studying the Gospel of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, easy to find. We're in chapter three. We're gonna look at verses one through 12. That's our text. The topic, Jews from all over the region flock to the desert to hear a person who calls himself the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so the title of our message is, I've been to the desert to the voice with no name. So you get it, right? Is that all right? Let's have, let's try to recover and have a word of prayer. Oh, Father, Lord, we thank you for the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Now, Lord, we want to pay attention to your word and to this particular passage that you've brought us to in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we certainly need and desire the anointing of the Holy Spirit in the teaching of it as it comes to our hearts, Lord, that it would be alive, that it would literally explode in our hearing, showing us Jesus Christ, him glorified, sitting at the right hand of the Father, poised and ready to return for us. And I pray that we would tremble with anticipation, Lord, the way a a bride awaits her bridegroom, that you would speak to us clearly, If there's anybody here, Lord, that's not a believer, there's gotta be one or two at least, that today they would hear your command to repent and believe the gospel, that their life would be changed for all eternity. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Moshe Bassan is the head chef at an acclaimed kosher restaurant in Israel. When he heard that millions of locusts were swarming across the border from Egypt, did you read about this? Big locust swarm coming into Israel from Egypt. When he heard that, his first thought was not of agricultural devastation wrought by marauding insects. It was of a nice locust risotto with coriander seeds and a pinch of chili. Because you see, locusts are a kosher food uh, they're a food that the book of Leviticus says they're an insect that the children of Israel can eat and in certain cases, it's a delicacy. Now, I doubt that John the Baptist was cooking locust risotto with coriander seed while he was out in the Judean wilderness. And anyway, it's not the meal of John the Baptist we're most interested in. Of course, it's his message. He appeared suddenly urging the people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent is a word we don't hear often enough, but that needs to change. It needs to change because it wasn't just the keynote of this strange wilderness preacher. It was the keynote of Jesus' message and that of the apostles after him. And it must therefore be a keynote in any and all gospel preaching. I'll organize my thoughts about John and repentance around two points. Number one, while you remain in the wilderness anticipating the kingdom, your repentance should be ongoing. And number two, while you remain in the wilderness anticipating the kingdom, your repentance should be outgoing. Let's take a look first of all, verses one through six, ongoing repentance. Now, if I had been a first century Jew, I would have been waiting to hear the announcement, rejoice for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By using the word repent, John was telling the Jews they were not at all ready for their king or for his kingdom. Before they could rejoice in it, they would have to repent for it. And so it begins in verse one, 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Matthew jumps ahead some 30 years after the events of Jesus' early childhood in chapters one and two. Matthew's Jewish readers apparently knew the background of John since he gives none of it. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is for everyone, but it was written originally for a Jewish audience uh, to show the Jews that Jesus was the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God, their Messiah. His birth was announced by the angel Gabriel, John's was, to his father, Zacharias, while he was serving as a priest in the temple. His mother, Elizabeth, was related to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because Zacharias did not believe Gabriel's announcement that he and Elizabeth were going to have a son, he was struck dumb until the child was born and he named him at his circumcision. If you're ever in the presence of an angel, which I doubt you and I will be, Don't doubt what they're telling you. Just go with it. Doubt it later because they don't like it. (laughs) Zechariah says, how can that be? And he says, hey, guess what? You're not going to talk again for nine months and eight days. And then at the circumcision of your son, you'll be able to name him. So just keep your mouth shut when angels are around. The Gospel of Luke tells us that John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and so he was an altogether unique and remarkable individual. In that same verse, we're told that he drank no alcohol, causing some commentators to say he obeyed the prohibitions of the Old Testament Nazarite vow. So he was a separated individual. John was in the wilderness, which becomes a symbol of the true spiritual condition of the Jews. They were in a spiritual wilderness in their hearts. While they may have wanted to wait along the road to Jerusalem with palm branches and shout Hosanna to welcome their king, a trip to the wilderness was going to be the prerequisite. Verse two says he was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent itself is from words translated after and mind. It thus comes to mean a new mind or a new way of thinking. We most commonly say it means to change your mind. Now we also say that it means to turn around and head in another direction, but as we'll see in a minute, that's kind of a secondary understanding. The real meaning of repent is a change change of mind, a radical change of mind. Change your mind about what? You change your mind about your relationship to God. You change your mind about sin, about God and yourself. Sin is recognized as personal guilt. God is recognized as the one who demands perfect righteousness and self is recognized as defiled and helpless. Jesus put repentance into perspective when he said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. To repent is to own my true spiritual condition before God. Just as a sick person owns his condition and his need for a physician, I must own that I am hopelessly sinful and selfish and need a savior. That's what I have to change my mind about. I have to recognize sin for what it is, the fact that I'm a sinner and my need for a savior. Here's a quote. Evangelical repentance is a godly sorrow wrought in the heart of a sinful person by the word and the spirit of God, whereby from a sense of his sin, 
as offensive to God and defiling and endangering his own soul and from an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, he with grief and hatred of all his known sins turns then to God as his Savior and Lord. It is that overwhelming sense of sin and your own uh, helplessness to do anything about it that drives you to the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, God is the author of our repentance, but he does not repent for us. He gives or he grants repentance in the sense of making repentance possible. As one creed puts it, the spirit of God gives to all who will repent the gracious help of penitence of heart and hope in mercy that they may believe unto pardon and spiritual life. A lot of times people say, well, repentance is the gift of God. Yes, it is. You cannot repent except by the grace of God, but you still have to repent, and it is not a work to repent. It is simply an acknowledgement of your condition. As Jesus said, I've called sinners to repentance. As a sick person, I say, I'm sick. I need help. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, first of all, it's the same as the kingdom of God. Sometimes you'll read, there, there are uh, commentators who try and make big differences between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, and I understand some of that, and it's not without merit, but I think what's happening here uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, he chooses the word heaven because, as I said, he's writing mostly to a Jewish audience, and Jews don't like to mention the name of, mm. they don't They don't like to speak the name of God. And so they would have to go around saying the kingdom of, mm, winking all the time. <laughs> and so to substitute for the kingdom of God, as a Jew, they would call it the kingdom of heaven where God rules. And so it's, I'll say the kingdom of heaven, I'll say the kingdom of God, we're talking about the same thing. Matthew's gonna mention the kingdom of heaven 32 times in his gospel. So it's an extremely important subject. Taking all his references into account, as well as the uh, teaching of the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, this is what basically is meant by the kingdom of heaven. The Old Testament promised that a descendant of King David would rule over a literal kingdom of heaven on the earth. When the king, Jesus Christ, was physically on the earth, the kingdom was described as present or at hand. So the king was present and his kingdom was at hand. He was offering the Jews their promised and prophesied kingdom. When Jesus was rejected by his own people, the promise of the literal kingdom on earth was postponed. It was not canceled, it was just postponed. In the meantime, all of his subjects obey him while the world continues in rebellion. And so we can talk about the, the invisible kingdom of God or the, the presence of the kingdom of God in the hearts of believers uh, because we obey the king who has gone to heaven. The king will return in what is called the second coming and he will in fact establish the long-awaited, postponed, real kingdom of God on the earth for a thousand years. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom of heaven. And a Jew would have no confusion about this. They were waiting for their Messiah to come and establish a real, honest-to-goodness kingdom on the earth that would be ruled from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Verse three, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
It's a verse in Isaiah, in a section of Isaiah, which describes the coming of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, to establish that kingdom on the earth. The word straight is very important. Now, we, we take from this, and, and it's, it's a proper application, the idea that somebody comes in advance of the king, clearing away the road so that it's straight and you know, he's able to come. But the word straight actually means measuring rod. John was reminding them that God was a measuring rod, that God was the standard that they must compare themselves to. His righteousness was what they must live up to and no one can, all of them fall short. And so they would get this, this is very important. You see, because the Jews did what we all do, they compared themselves to each other. And they looked, and, and you can always, almost always, unless, well, I would guess everybody in here can always find somebody worse off than you. You know, I, I mean, you, you know, just, well, I don't want to suggest anybody, but anyway. <laughs> and so we compare ourselves to others. And so uh, the, the Pharisees would do this all the time, and the religious leaders you know, they'd go into the temple and they'd see some poor publican beating his breast saying, be merciful to me, God, a sinner. And they'd think, hey, I'm so glad I'm not like that loser. I'm righteous. And so John is saying, make straight the path. In other words, live up to God's standard. And now all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh, I'm not ready for the kingdom just by being a Jew, just by keeping some outward standards, just by being a Pharisee or a Sadducee, I'm in trouble because I have to measure myself against something far greater than I have been. Verse four says, now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. His clothing is reminiscent of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And that's significant because in the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, some say it's an Italian book, Malachi, the book of Malachi there is a promise that Elijah will come first to announce the arrival of the king. After that revelation by Malachi, there was silence as far as Bible prophecy was concerned for the next 400 years. Did you just hear music? I just heard music. I just, I broke into, I'm practicing for so you think you can dance, so whenever I hear music. Anyway, silence for 400 years. Then, all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere, even though people knew who John was, basically, and they had their background, they didn't really understand what was going on. All of a sudden, he comes walking out of the Judean wilderness, looking like Elijah, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's the first prophetic voice they hear since Malachi said that was going to happen. What? This is exciting. Wow. It's pretty thrilling. It's almost as thrilling as that phone call. I'm sorry. It's, I can't help myself. It's all right. Uh, your apology is accepted, sister. God bless you. <laughs> anyway, it's a good thing Malachi didn't have cell phones. But anyway, no, anyway. His, so uh, now his diet, coupled with other clues about, it's just going to force you to be here five minutes longer. But anyway, uh, we get, this guy meant business. When you saw John the Baptist, this is a guy who meant business with God. Camel hair, leather belt, chewing a locust, dipping it in some honey pot. <laughs> Repent! 
kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you knew he had the cred to back this up. I mean, this is a guy that never drank, that lived a Nazarite life, his hair just going crazy. I mean, this guy, you, this, he, was, he was Elijah for all practical purposes. Now, I should mention, there are some who think locusts refers to not the insect, but rather to something called the locust tree, which gives a certain kind of fruit or berry. I think those people are just squeamish about insects. Jews ate locusts. I mean, now maybe he had some locust trees going on too, but I like the crunch. I just see him with the crunch of a locust, don't you? Repent! pulling legs out of his teeth. I mean, this is, you got to get into this. This is, this is great. As I recall, the guy who played John the Baptist in Jesus of Nazareth did a great job. I, I was always impressed with him. So I never saw the Passion of the Christ. Was John the Baptist in the Passion of the Christ? Any of you who saw that? Was there a John the Baptist character? Was Jesus in the Passion of the Christ? <laughs> Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, the Jews practiced all kind of ceremonial washings, but baptism by immersion, which is what is meant here, that was reserved for Gentiles who wanted to convert to the Jewish religion. A Gentile convert was called a proselyte and he had to first be circumcised if he was male, then be baptized in the presence of three witnesses and then bring a sacrifice into the temple and then he was a proselyte, he was a, a believer in Judaism. For a Jew to undergo baptism, that was saying they were no better than an unbelieving Gentile. They were on exactly the same level as a Gentile. Their heritage and rituals were meaningless. It meant being a Jew meant nothing, in other words. They still needed to repent. We'll see why in a minute. Now, it was maybe the most unpopular message you could imagine. If you were out in the wilderness spending time with God, and, and, and you were to say, God, I want the most unpopular message I could possibly preach, this is it. Tell Jews they need to act like Gentiles and repent. Yet it says all flocked to John, not just to hear him, but to concede he was correct and to submit to baptism. Now, by the time Jesus dies on the cross, a lot of this enthusiasm has died out. But this is a tremendous move of the Spirit of God on hearts to start this movement. One commentator estimates John may have, I don't know how he gets this number, but he estimates that John may have baptized upwards of 200,000 people. I don't know how the math works out, but it wasn't just 10 or 12 guys that wanted to follow John as his disciples. He baptized thousands and thousands of people. Again, I'll make the contrast. Expecting to rejoice, the Jews were commanded instead to repent. They were called upon to be baptized as if they were converting to, uh, to Judaism for the first time. It was humbling, yet they submitted to it. John preached repentance. As we'll see, Jesus preached repentance. His 12 apostles preached repentance. It was the theme of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. When the people said, what should we do? Peter said, repent. Repentance was the heart of the Apostle Paul's preaching of the gospel, and it remains a command to be preached by disciples to all men everywhere. Here's something for 
us who have repented, as it were, who are saved, to think about, repentance is ongoing. It's something that never stops in the Christian life. When Martin Luther discovered that biblical repentance meant a change of mind rather than doing penance for your sin, it changed his whole outlook on salvation and was one of the chief factors in ushering in the Reformation. In his famous 95 Theses, which marked the beginning of the Reformation, Martin Luther declared that the entire life of a Christian is to be characterized by an attitude of repentance. Now, that doesn't mean you're not saved or that you're not forgiven and that you keep repenting and getting saved all the time. It means you are to continually become more and more aware of sin in its subtleties and change your mind about it. To a seemingly vibrant first century church, the church at Ephesus, Jesus said, repent. In their case, they had left their first love and needed to check their relationship to him. They were definitely believers, definitely doing a good work for the Lord, but Jesus said, there are, you need to repent. You're not right with me. And so it's ongoing. The apostle Paul, late in his walk with Jesus, could acknowledge that he was the chief sinner not that he used to be, but that he was right then because he had an attitude of repentance to the subtlety of sin. The Apostle John reminded us that if we do not sin, or excuse me, that if we say we do not sin, he said, then you're a liar because you do. As long as we are living in this wilderness while the kingdom is postponed, we will need to constantly be changing our minds about sin and self and our savior, growing more, never less sensitive to sin's subtleties. A servant of Christ once said, I repented before I knew the meaning of the word. I have repented far more since I did then. Have you, have I? That's the question we must ask and answer. Have you repented? Have I repented? Now the second part of our talk, verses seven through 12, we're talking about repentance being outgoing. By outgoing, I mean to say you and I are the current voices on the earth in this wilderness of sin and self and Satan who are to command all men everywhere to repent. Verse seven, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The Pharisees were ritualists. They kept all manner of outward rituals thinking that they were righteous before God by what they did externally. The Sadducees turned out to be rationalists. They denied everything supernatural. They didn't believe in any resurrection from the dead. They were the rationalists of their day. We would call them materialists as well. They both, however, saw themselves as righteous before God and having no need of repentance. Why come out to John at all? Well, for one thing, many thousands upon thousands of Jews were being affected by his preaching, and that was not something that they were happy about. They were either being hypocritical, acting like they acknowledged John so as to remain popular with the people. I mean, when you have a movement that is affecting a couple of hundred thousand people, and people come to you and you're a Pharisee and say, what do you think about this? You can't say, I, I don't know what you're talking about. You have to at least have checked it out. Or they were just looking for some reason to criticize John and undermine his ministry so that they could get back to thinking they were the righteous ones and everybody else was below them. Now I'm told that the Pharisees began as a separatist movement during the time of Malachi. 
There's some sections of Malachi where it talks about a people who are looking into the word of God and speaking to each other about the, the Lord and separating themselves from sin. And God is listening to them and he's pleased with them. These are the Pharisees. This is the beginning of the Pharisee movement. 400 years later, they would get Jesus' sharpest criticisms for being uh, hypocrites and leading people astray. Let it serve as a warning. Anyone can start well. It's how we finish. Now that took them 400 years. I mentioned the church at Ephesus. They needed to repent after only a few years of existence that John was writing to them in the first century. Probably towards the end of the first century, but they'd only been a church maybe a couple of decades, three decades, and Jesus said, hey, you need to repent. The main viper in the Bible is the devil the serpent of old. In a moment, John's gonna make a reference to the sons of Abraham. He says, you're a brood or you're the offspring of vipers. And then he's gonna talk about sons of Abraham. This tells us that these guys probably played the Abraham card, saying, we don't need baptism since we're the descendants of Abraham and we're automatically on our way to heaven. In other words, hey, Abraham is our dad. And uh, because of that, John, you may not have figured it out, but we're, we're the chosen people. We're the in crowd. We're going to heaven. John says, no, no. Happy Father's Day, Pharisees and Sadducees. You're of your father, the devil. Father's Day message right there. <laughs> Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, verse eight. Repentance is not a work. It is not a turning away from sin. But if you repent, if you change your mind about sin, it will manifest itself in a change of behavior in which you do, in fact, turn away from sin and bear spiritual fruit. It is the evidence that you have repented that your life changes. That's what this is saying. Verse nine, do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. The truth is Abraham has three types of descendants. He has physical descendants, Everybody descended from him physically is a Jew. He has among the Jews spiritual descendants, those Jews who have repented and believed. And so not a, the Jews thought, oh, hey, I'm a Jew, I'm saved. And that's never been true. They're the physical descendants of Abraham, but they still had to be saved. They had to have faith in God. They had to believe and be the true spiritual offspring of Abraham. And then as we saw in previous studies uh, in the book of Jeremiah and elsewhere, some of the promises to Abraham were made for Gentiles who would believe. And so Abraham also has spiritual descendants among the Gentiles. We keep these three groups distinct because otherwise you will never understand Bible prophecy. People come along and they say, well, all the spiritual descendants of Abraham, um, you know, they're all lumped into one, Jew and Gentile. There is no separation between Israel and the church. That's not true. God made unconditional special promises to the nation, of, to the physical spiritual descendants of Abraham and to the spiritual descendants of the Gentiles. So keep those groups set, separate. But for our purposes this morning, John is just saying, being a Jew will not save you. You need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I thought salvation was just by faith. So why are we talking so much about repentance? Well, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. 
Repentance is a condition of the heart necessary before we exercise saving faith. True repentance never exists apart from faith. You cannot turn from sin without turning to God, but conversely, true faith never exists without repentance. They go together. And that's why the message of, the, of John and, the, and Jesus and the apostles was repent and believe. It, 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 they went together. Why do we not mention repentance more? And by we, I would include myself in that. Well, I think it's because we're afraid it will come across as a work we must do in order to be saved. We're, we're so, it, salvation by grace, God's grace is so important. It's so important that we never come across as giving anybody any indication that there's anything they must or can do that would save themselves that we back off from this word repentance because in our minds we're sometimes taught that it means a change in behavior. And therefore, we might give people the wrong impression that they need to stop sinning and then they can get saved rather than get saved and they will stop sinning. And so if I preach repentance and if people hear me saying quit you know, smoking and drinking and doing this and doing that and fornicating and all that, they might leave and think, well, as soon as I clean up my life, as soon as I repent and get my behavior right, then I'll be a candidate for salvation. But what repentance really means is change your mind. Take the first sermon in the Christian era when Peter got up and, and he was preaching the gospel and the people said, what must we do to be saved? And he says, you need to repent and believe. What did they need to repent of? They needed to repent of, they needed to change their mind about Jesus Christ because these were the people who had said crucify him. They didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God, their savior. They didn't believe that they were sinners in need of salvation. And so Peter said, yeah, you are, and that's him. And they said, well, we, what should we do? And he goes, change your mind. Come into the biblical understanding that you're a hell-doomed sinner in need of a savior and there's your savior, Jesus Christ, and him crucified and risen from the dead. And they did, and thousands were saved. They didn't have to change any behavior. They had to change their mind. Then their behavior changed. And if you, and when you truly repent, your behavior has to change. And that's why it is called the fruit of repentance. Dr. H.A. Ironside, if you can ever find any of his books, just buy them. Uh, he once said, undoubtedly one great reason why some earnest gospel preachers are almost afraid of and generally ignore the term repentance and repent in their evangelizing is that they fear lest their hearers misunderstand these terms and think of them as implying some meritorious work on the part of the sinner, but nothing could be wider of the mark. There is no saving merit in owning my true condition. There is no healing in acknowledging the nature of my illness. Remember, Jesus said those who are sick need a physician. You don't go to your doctor and say, Doc, I've got cancer. There it is, I'm healed. No, you, know, you say, Doc, I've got cancer, and then the doctor does something about it. He heals you. And so for me to repent, for me to say I have the cancer of sin in my life and I'm gonna go to hell, if I die right now, I'll be burning alive in hell for eternity. Well, you know, that's repentance. And then I'm going to change the way I live because the Lord is going to save me by grace through faith.
To emphasize believing only is to water down the gospel. John and Jesus, the apostles after them, Paul after them, everyone after them commanded men to repent and believe, and so must we. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees, verse 10, therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The Pharisees especially prided themselves on keeping the law. Sadducees, since they were among the elite in Jewish society, they claimed God must be blessing them in order for them to hold those positions. John said neither had any real spiritual fruit and they were in fact like dead trees which needed to be removed to make room for fruitful trees. And so John said, he looked at these guys and he says, hey, you guys may think you're something, you're all that. But if you were a tree, you would be a dead tree. There's no pruning that's gonna help you. And there's no amount of watering or, or nutrition that's gonna, you're dead. And what the farmer would do is remove you by the roots and replant. And so he's telling them that they are dead trees. You have to understand, from a Jewish point of view, even the people thought that these guys were the cat's meow. I mean, if you were a Pharisee or a Sadducee, you were you were pretty spiritual, you were pretty righteous. And so not only was John saying no one is righteous, but you guys are especially unrighteous. You're dead trees. If anybody needs to repent, it's you guys. They're not gonna enter the kingdom. They're gonna be cast into the fire. So remember, the king is here, he's coming. We're gonna see him in verse 13. And John says, you're gonna be cast into the fire in this kingdom. Verse 11, and I, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Subjected as they were to the Roman Empire, they were an occupied country, the Jews couldn't help but think that their king would come and free them to be a sovereign nation once again, to restore them to the glories of the kingdom under David and Solomon. John was giving them insight into a more important aspect of the kingdom. There was a spiritual aspect that needed to be resolved first. When their king came, he would first identify his true subjects. This is revelatory to the Jews. If you're a Jew thinking that you're in, you're chosen, John is saying, among you, there are true subjects who are going into the kingdom and there are those who are going to not only be left out of the kingdom, but are going to be left out of it eternally. Only those who repented would be gathered into the kingdom, the rest would be burned. He used the common process of winnowing wheat to separate it from the useless chaff, wheat would then be gathered into the barn while the leftover chaff was burned. Using the imagery of immersion baptism, John said there were two possibilities, that you'd be baptized with the Holy Spirit, which simply means that you'd be in the saved category, or you'd be baptized with fire, which simply means you'd be in the lost category. The fire he's talking about here is eternal fire. If you want to identify these things more precisely from the Old Testament, baptism with the Holy Spirit is probably a reference to the prophecy in the Old Testament book of Joel that says the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out upon God's people in the latter days. The baptism with fire is ultimately a final future judgment of sinners to an eternity separated from God in the lake burning with fire, which we commonly call hell. 
This message hasn't changed. Jesus is coming, and when he does, he will separate believers from non-believers. The kingdom of heaven he establishes on the earth for a thousand years will be a believers-only kingdom at its beginning. Non-believers will be separated out and consigned to suffering to await their final disposition in the lake of fire. We'll get to that in Matthew 25 when he separates believers from non-believers. There it's called the separation of the sheep from the goats. We are called upon to tell all men everywhere, repent and believe. John said repent. The opening line of Jesus' first preaching was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To Jews, Peter declared, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. To Gentiles, Paul declared, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Mark 1.15, Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. That's the formula, if I can put it that way without sounding trite. Repent and believe. We are the voice in the wilderness. We are to be outgoing, or if you prefer, going out with the gospel of repentance and faith. We are to command men, or at least let them know God is commanding them to repent and believe. The man who believes God repents. The repentant soul puts its trust in the Lord when the gospel is revealed to him. No man repents until the Holy Spirit produces repentance in his soul, but no man believes the gospel and rests in it for his own salvation until he has repented. People want to argue about, is it all from God? Is it all from man? God, by grace, must work on the heart. Salvation is all of grace from start to finish. It's all by grace. But God doesn't repent for you. He frees the will so a person may repent. And so we command men, we preach, this is why the word is so important, this is why we have to preach the gospel, let people know that Jesus is their savior and that they are sinners so that the word can have an impact so that we can command them, repent and believe so that they will change their mind about who they are, about who God is and about what's really going to happen. And essentially, if you were saved later in life, that's what happened to you. I can remember the moment the weight of sin was revealed to me. I was standing outside on, on the landing of our house in Running Springs. And all of a sudden, I realized for the first time, before that, growing up in the Catholic Church and just being a regular Joe, I thought, well, I'm, I'm a sinner. I do bad things. I, you know, I guess this is sin and all that. But there came a moment when by God's grace I understood, wow, I'm a sinner. My heart is black with sin. I'm only selfish all the time. And I'm gonna, if I died right now, if this tree fell over and killed me, if a squirrel dropped a nut on my head, you know, and I died, I would awake unto eternal damnation. And I saw Jesus Christ who I always kind of believed was God and knew you know, a lot about him, I understood he was my savior and that I had to flee to the cross, that he died for me so that I could be saved and that was that. And then a brother a few days later led me in a sinner's prayer because I said, yeah, of course I want to be saved. Of course I want to know that this is real and have that assurance. And this is what we're talking about, repentance and faith. It's the work of God on the heart and then our response, which is not a work, but still necessary. 
And so the question is, have you ever repented? And if you have, are you ever repenting? Let's pray. Father, good questions. We thank you for the absolutely phenomenal, unique ministry of John the Baptist. There's probably things we can learn about being a servant from him, but he was unique. Elijah coming right out of the pages of the Old Testament, as it were, with a a tremendous ministry uh, of baptism unto repentance and all. Uh, But Lord, for us today, to, to struggle with these questions to, in an excited way, in a, in a beautiful way, and to look at our own hearts by the illumination of the Holy Spirit and to wonder, have I ever repented? There has to be one or two people here, Lord, in our midst that has never repented in the sense of changing their mind radically about sin and the Savior. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and we continue in an attitude of prayer, waiting upon the Lord. If you're here today and you've never truly repented, you haven't changed your mind, you're not a Christian, you don't have the assurance of your salvation. You've heard the word, talked about Jesus, you know what he's done. The apostles Jesus, John, they would all say, repent and believe the gospel. I'm going to sing a chorus right now. If you're a Christian, while you're continuing to meditate on your own heart, shoot up a prayer that if there's somebody here that hasn't received Christ, that today would be the day that they come to know the Lord. We've had people get saved on Sunday mornings, obviously. Maybe you have. But uh, let's pray that the word would have its effect. Gino's going to sing a chorus giving you an opportunity if you're not a believer to cry out to God. Let's sing and let's pray for those who are here that don't know the Lord that need to come to him.